as I indicated last week, what I shall be doing in these lectures is not to repeat the material that you will have in your notes. I shall expect you to read the notes and to ask any questions that come to your mind concerning them. But what I shall do is to parallel the notes with comments which will be designed to bring out the meaning of that particular aspect of history, or to throw some light from literature of the period on the goals and the purposes of men. Our first chapter deals with Israel, with the history of the Old Testament people, God and Israel. Our source for this history is the Bible. It is customary nowadays, even in so-called evangelical circles, to say that the Bible is not a textbook of history, and it's not a textbook of science, and that we should listen to scientists and historians and what they have to say, which may correct or supplement scripture. This kind of division of faith and history is not Christian. It is Bartian. It is a heresy. The Bible, in fact, is the best history book in the world and the source of our only infallible knowledge of history because it is the inspired and infallible word of God. This is its own claim. Now, of course, at this point, if I were lecturing to a group of say, college professors, they would immediately raise the question which has been raised over and over again. Well, what about all the other books that claim to be inspired books? All the books in the world that claim to be the Word of God. Why should we believe that this one in particular is the true Word of God rather than those of other religions? The answer to that is a very obvious one. Are there, we may ask, many books of many religions claiming to be the inspired word of God? The answer is very definitely no. In fact, virtually all religions in the world are non-theistic. That is, they do not hold to a supreme, absolute, and perfect God. In fact, most of them do not even affirm that there is a God. Thus, Buddhism has no God. In Buddhism, it is not God who rules the world, but nothingness is often it. Taoism does not have a God. It says that basically there are two forces in the universe, the yang and the yin, the male and the female impulses. And so there is no right or wrong, but that which is fitting at a particular time, sometimes drive an initiative and other times to yield and to give in. These are the things that govern history. These two basic drives are impulses. For Hinduism, like 
Buddhism, nothingness is ultimate. Jainism, another powerful religion in India, has no god. It simply worships life and believes in the transmigration of souls. And the Jains are the ones who go around with a veil before their face, lest they should, by accident, inhale a gnat or some other insect and kill it, when the gnat could be their grandmother or grandfather reincarnated. They have no concept of God. And so on. As you go around the world and examine the religions of the ancient world, outside of the Bible, there is none, not one, that affirms a belief in God, in a sovereign, absolute God. Oh, yes, they talked about gods, but the gods were not anything that we would call even gods. As Tertullian said to the Romans, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, he said, your gods are made or unmade by Senate. The Senate passes a resolution and says that uh, Emperor so-and-so who died last year is now a god by act of Senate. And he said, what kind of a god is one who can be made or unmade by an act of senate? In a very real sense, the term to apply to the gods of paganism was the word hero. And in fact, a hero was a semi-divine man. Someone probably on his way to being fully a god. As a result, there was no God in them. They were just deified men. And of course, this is very clear in such religions as Shintoism. The gods are the ancestors. And Shintoism is essentially ancestor worship. So the idea that any of these pagan religions had a Bible in which God claimed to be speaking, or the writers of it said that God was speaking, is ridiculous. In the Bible, we are told again and again, the Spirit of the Lord said thus and so. These are the words of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet so and so. Now, what are these pagan books going to say? The Spirit of nothingness sees me, or nothingness said to me? Well, the idea is ridiculous. And so the objection of these people that all these other religions have sacred books in which the gods speak or God speaks is nonsense. As a matter of fact, we are the ones who gave their books, their religious books, the name of Bible. We call them the Bibles of these various religions, which is nonsense. They don't think of them that way. They don't think of them as inspired and infallible words of God, because first, they don't have the concept of an inspired and infallible word or any belief in a God who speaks. The Bible, therefore, is very clearly unique. No religion 
has what claims to be the word of God except biblical faith. Now, having said that, we must add that although the Bible has no rivals, it has imitators. In the Christian era, there have been imitation Bibles. But no civilization, no culture, no religion, independently of Christianity, has ever produced a book that claims to be the Word of God. The Bible is unique. But after Christianity began to make known its message, then there were imitations. And of course, the first and greatest one was Islam. Islam. The Quran. K-O-R-A-N. The Quran of Muhammad. But it's a pseudo-Bible. It has no verified prophecy. It has no verified history. There is nothing in it of any character that stands. Whereas the Bible, at every point where archaeology has done any excavating, it has been confirmed to the very minute detail. Its prophecies have been fulfilled. But the Quran is just the endless statements about things by Muhammad. And very often where he touches on history very clearly, wrong. Another pseudo-Bible or imitation Bible is the Book of Mormon. Here again we have a very sorry work. Very few people are aware of the fact that the Book of Mormon, since it was produced by Joseph Smith, by 1900 had been revised over 2,000 times. Over 2,000 revisions in it. Why? To correct very obvious and glaring blunders. One of the worst blunders that Joseph Smith worked into his Book of Mormon was he had somebody, supposedly a Hebrew, writing about 600 B.C., quote Shakespeare. <laughs> of course, those older editions of the Book of Mormon have been recalled and virtually all destroyed. They're ex exceedingly rare. But you can see why they had to revise it so many times between... Joseph Smith's day and the end of the century. It was a pseudo-Bible, an imitation Bible. The concept of the Word of God is unique. It belongs to the Bible only, and it gives us an historical revelation, one that is abundantly at every point. Historical and relates to the problems of this world. I'd like to quote here from Gordon Clark's study of historiography. Now, this is basically a study of the philosophy of historical writers. But he has something to say about the difference between the Greek writers and the Hebrews, the biblical writers. And he says, Plato, 
Cicero and Aristotle and other such historians had no sense of history. Plato apologetically remarks that human affairs are hardly worth considering. Cicero asserts that the gods attend to great matters and neglect small ones. Aristotle teaches that the gods are not concerned at all with the dispensation of good and bad fortune, and with reason they're not personal. Then, in powerful language, maintained over a dozen pages, Dr. Heschel, he's referring to another scholar, impresses on his readers the prophetic abhorrence of evil and God's concern for his people in the Bible. Quote, to the prophet, however, no subject is as worthy of consideration as the plight of man. Indeed, God himself is described as reflecting over the plight of man rather than as contemplating eternal ideas. His mind is preoccupied with man, with the concrete actualities of history, rather than the timeless issues of thought. The prophet's concern is not with nature, but with history, unquote. Now, this is the difference. Go to these pagan so-called sacred books, and they're talking about abstractions. Basically, what they're asking is, is life worth living or not? And their basic answer is always, it really isn't, and the goal is to be dead and finished with it all. But what does the Bible tell us? that the very hairs of our head are all numbered, that not a sparrow falls but your Father in heaven knows it, that he has a total concern with man and with the world. There is nothing in all the religions of the world like it. And this is exactly why the Bible is a unique book why it is historical. It begins by telling us the creation of the world, and it goes on to tell us the history of the world in terms of God's covenant with his people. And it tells us that that covenant is going to include, finally, all peoples, tribes, and tongues. And that God's order is going to prevail over the entire earth. And then the end we thus have something radically different in the Bible than in all other religions, and you only have true historiography where Christianity has been. Nowhere else. Before the Christians went to the Orient, did they teach history? Not at all. You could study Confucianism or Buddhism or Taoism or Shintoism, but history? No. Who was concerned with history? Or the welfare of man or the salvation of man? No. That didn't concern anyone. Why should it? The one concern was how to escape from life. China was a country filled with Buddhism and Mohammedanism and other religions. 
But travelers there in the last century, in fact, up until the time the communists took over, said that if somebody fell overboard on a boat on the Yellow River, no one would stop. No one would save his life. Who wanted the liability of somebody's life? Life wasn't worth that much. So history was meaningless, because life to them was meaningless. Thus, the humanistic historians who despise Christianity are despising the very thing that has made the teaching of history and interest in history at all possible. It would be tempting to spend more time on this, but since we have all of history to the present to try to cover, Let's pass on now to Egypt, our second chapter. Now on page 9 of our chapter on history, I call attention to the fact in the second paragraph, the sixth line from the end of the second paragraph that John A. Wilson has observed in the symposium before philosophy. The Egyptians were monophysites. It is not a matter of a single god, but of a single nature of observed phenomena in the universe with a clear possibility of exchange and substitution. With relation to gods and men, the Egyptians were monophysites, many men and many gods but all ultimately of one nature. Now the word monophysite literally means one nature. One nature in all things. Therefore all things are divine. The gods, the Egyptian gods, and the men, and so on. As I point out in that chapter, they sometimes would have an onion in their temple. You worship the onion because you were thereby indicating that there was one nature in all things. But all things were also evolving upwards. And as a result, the gods themselves spoke of evolution. Evolution is a pagan concept. On page 10, the third paragraph, about the middle of the page. This development of man was simply a reflection of the evolution and development of the god. The god Nebarachur declared, I evolved the evolving of evolution. I evolved myself under the form of the evolutions of the god Kepera, which were evolved at the beginning of all time. I evolved with the evolution of the god Kepera. I evolved by the evolution of evolutions. That is to say, I developed myself from the primeval matter which I made. I developed myself out of the primeval matter. My name is Osiris, or Osiris, the germ of primeval matter. As a result, they had a concept of evolution, everything evolving, the onion, had the same nature as you did, and you and the onion had the same nature as the gods in the world to come, 
And when you died, if you had evolved properly during life by good works, you would become a god. And in the book of the dead, it is described how when you passed all the tests and the examinations, if you were not destroyed because your bad works were greater than your good works, you would stand there and you would say, I feel the hands of myself becoming the hands of a god, and I feel the hair of myself becoming a god, and so on, a long ritual whereby you celebrated the fact that you are now a god. It was thus an evolving society, but it was also a fixed society in a certain respect. What does that mean? Both evolving and yet fixed. Well, it was fixed in that it was like a pyramid, and the pyramid was the symbol of Egypt. The pharaoh, who was the god-man, was at the top. And down at the base were all the masses of the common people, and around them the world of nature. As man progressed, he began to move upward on that pyramid, until finally he went into another pyramid, inverted, which was the realm of the dead or the realm of the gods. But it was a fixed thing. So that there was a static social order unchanging, and in that framework, man evolved. All of pagan antiquity was evolutionary in its thinking. Evolution has no evidence. It is a faith. Now, creationism is a faith, too. We believe in God, therefore we believe his word when he declares that he created all things and that in the space of six days. Now, we can say we believe there's more evidence for our position than for the evolutionary position, but basically we accept it on faith. Only a few scientists will admit that their position is basically a faith, but it is, and it's an ancient pagan faith. Now, some societies were in continual flux. We shall see that when we come to the Babylonians and the Assyrians. They were always changing as a part of their evolutionary thinking. But the Egyptians were not. There couldn't be change in the framework. Because they had arrived at a kind of a Henry Ford concept. Now, Henry Ford standardized the Model T at a certain point. And he felt, I might make from year to year minor changes in the motor, but basically it's the same thing. The motor car has developed to a certain point, and I've got it to a point where it's a terrific seller. It gives people what they want. I don't have to advance it. So, any customer can have any color, provided it's black. <laughs> and it's going to be standard year in and year out. Well, he made a fortune that way, but of course, things didn't stand still, you see. But he tried within a framework to standardize and then have minor changes within the framework. It's basically been a profitable idea for the Volkswagen company, too. Up to a point they could do it. And then now they're feeling that uh, things are leaving them behind, so they've got to change their standardization. But you get the idea. You freeze the form and you make minor changes within it, 
and you say, well, as long as you accept all, uh, uh, you can have any color as long as it's black, and within that framework, we'll tinker around, but we won't change the basic framework. Now, that's what Egypt believed. You maintained the basic framework, the pyramid of society, and you did not change it. Well, they made it work for quite a while. Egypt in the ancient world was a very great power and a very proud power. It was at the crossroads of the world. Three continents touching each other more or less in that area, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And in those days, North Africa was a rich, lush country. The Sahara in those days was not desert. Partly the weather moved northward and partly men turned it into a desert. You know, there are some parts of the Middle West, uh, in the, uh, Dakotas, for example, that get as much rain as some parts of the Sahara. But look at the difference between them. And, uh, when the French had North Africa, they were in areas that once had been rich civilizations with millions of citizens beginning slowly to replant and reforest the area with certain types of trees. Now, again, it's going downhill. But more than once, man has turned some portion of the world into a desert. But in those days, it was very popular. There were more people living in the Mediterranean world in the days of the Roman Empire and earlier than are living now. And they were not overpopulated. That area still has tremendous potentiality. In the right hand. After all, remember, North America was in the hands of 300,000 Indians. Some people say twice that. But nobody says more than a million. And they lived not only poorly, but they starved to death almost every winter, and they resorted to cannibalism regularly. It was poor country, as far as they were concerned. And now look how rich it is. Egypt was tremendously rich and fertile. I point out in uh, the second chapter that the soil along the Nile Basin is one of the richest in the world. Tremendously rich. Egyptian cotton is, by the way, the best cotton in the world. But they're still one of the poorest peoples in the world today. India and Egypt are perhaps the countries with the most insoluble problems of any country today. Egypt, incidentally, is no longer ruled by Egyptians, but by Arabs. It was conquered by the Muslims, and the Arabs have ruled it ever since, except, of course, when the Turks and the British had it. But basically, within the country, Arabs have been dominant, and the Copts, the ancient Egyptians, are in the minority. It is interesting that one of the words used for Egypt in the Bible is Mizraim, M-I-Z-R-A-I-M. And we are told that 
the Egyptians descended from one of the descendants of Noah, whose name was Mizraim. Someone who went to Egypt told me that uh, it was an interesting thing after reading his Bible and knowing it to realize that the Egyptian airlines is called the Mizraim Airlines. They still use that name there. But with the Egyptians, their faith, because it was a status faith, because it was a faith in which the state was God on earth, and in which man had no life outside of the state, was one in which there was no real hope. And so it is interesting to read Egyptian documents and to see the pessimism that gradually overwhelmed them. But first, some Egyptian instructions. These are from the Vizier Tahotep, about 2450 B.C., and he left instructions as to how to live. And some of it is rather interesting and good sound advice. If thou art a man of standing and foundest a household and producest a son who is pleasing to the God, if he is correct and inclines toward thy way and listens to thy instruction while his manners in thy house are fitting, and if he take care of thy property as it should be, seek out for him every useful action. He is thy son, whom thy ka engendered for thee. Thou shouldest not cut thy heart off from him. But a man's seed often creates enmity. If he goes astray and transgresses thy plan, and does not carry out thy instruction, so that his manners in thy household are wretched, and he rebels against all that thou sayest, while his mouth runs on in the most wretched talk, quite apart from his experience, while he possesses nothing, thou shouldest cast him off. He is not thy son at all. He was not really born to thee. Thus thou enslavest him entirely according to his own speech. He is one whom God has condemned in the very womb. Good hard-headed advice, and listen to this. If thou art a man of standing, thou shouldest found thy household, and love thy wife at home as is fitting. Fill her belly, clothe her back. Ointment is the prescription for her body. Make her heart glad as long as thou livest. She is a profitable field for her Lord. Thou shouldest not contend with her at law, and keep her far from gaining control. Her eye is her storm wind. Let her heart be soothed through what may accrue to thee. It means keeping her long in thy house. Then uh, another bit of advice from him. Do justice while thou endurest upon earth. Quiet the weeper, do not oppress the widow, supplant no man in the property of his father, and impair no officials at their post. Be on thy guard against punishing wrongfully. Do not slaughter, it is no advantage to thee. But thou shouldest punish with beatings and with arrest. This land will be firmly grounded thereby, except for the rebel when his plans are discovered, for the gods know the treacherous of heart, 
and the gods condemn his sin and blood. Do not kill a man when thou knowest his good qualities, one with whom thou didst once sing the writings. He who reads in the Sifi book, uh, and so on. Then for a little advice of another sort, this from the instructions of Ami from the 11th to the 8th century B.C., probably. Take to thyself a wife whilst thou art still a youth, that she may produce a son for thee. Beget him for thyself while thou art still young. Teach him to be a man. A man whose people are many is happy. He is saluted respectfully with regard to his children. Be on thy guard against a woman from abroad who is not known in her own town. Do not stare at her when she passes by. Do not know her carnally. A deep water whose windings one knows not, a woman who is far away from her husband. I am sleep, she says to thee every day. She has no witnesses when she waits to ensnare thee. It is a great crime worthy of death when one hears of it. Do not talk a lot. Be silent and thou wilt be happy. Do not be garrulous. And then, a little later, thou shouldest not express thy whole heart to the stranger to let him discover thy speech against thee. If a passing remark issues from thy mouth and is hasty and it is repeated, thou wilt make enemies. A man may fall to ruin because of his tongue. And then, a little further, thou shouldest not supervise too closely thy wife in her own house. When thou knowest she is deficient, do not say to her, Where is it? Fetch it for us. When she has put it in the most useful place, let thy wife have regard while thou let thy eye have regard while thou art silent, that thou mayest recognize her ability. How happy it is when thy hand is with her. Many are here who do not know what a man should do to stop dissension in his house. Every man who is settled in the house should Hold the hasty heart firm. Thou shouldest not pursue after a woman, that is another woman, do not let her steal away thy heart. And so on. The Egyptians thus were a very practical people, very pragmatic, and very hard-headed in their practical wisdom. As a result, because of their very practical, pragmatic way, they did build up a very firm, enduring empire, a very successful and a very prosperous one. Incidentally, uh, we tend to think of people who lived long ago as having been more or less half-savage and not like us. It may surprise you that in Moses' day, and remember, Moses was a prince of the realm because Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. According to what Scholars have learned Solomon probably in the evening of the, in the cool of the day took a walk around the palace grounds with other gentlemen wearing a top hat and having a gold-headed walking cane. So <laughs> it's a little different than we imagine that this is the way they lived. It was an advanced culture. But its pragmatism killed it. It was a culture without any real faith except in that which was practical. 
and ultimately it was not able to stand. Then our third chapter deals with some of the ancient Near Eastern cultures. Again, very briefly to touch on uh, some of these. I have shown these pictures to some of you previously, but I think they're well worth seeing again. We fail to realize that man, the minute we find him on the scene of history, is a very highly civilized man. That the idea of a primitive, a caveman, is unknown to history. So that to understand what man is, we have to recognize that he was the created in the image of God, and when we first meet him, he has knowledge, and he builds a civilization quickly. The Minoan civilization goes back about 3000 B.C. to about 1400 B.C. It built a tremendous civilization. It may be a surprise to some of you that they had hot and cold running water and flush toilets and so on. This is a portion of one of the palaces, and here is a portion of the interior. Hardly the kind of thing you associate with primitivism. And these are ruins, just a shadow of what they once were. Now this is the Minoan civilization on Crete. 3000 B.C. to 1400 B.C. Now the religion of most of these countries, if not virtually all of them, that are dealt with in chapter 3 was a fertility cult religion, and Baal worship was a form of the fertility cult worship. And fertility cult worship is a highly sexual worship. As a matter of fact, the temples would have ritual prostitutes attached to them. And there would be worship which would require sexual acts. So that you would go there and as a part of your worship at the temple, there was no congregational meeting, incidentally, outside of the Bible. Some have imitated it. Buddhists nowadays, for example, have congregational meetings. But in no pagan religion, was there any such thing as one day of worship or a congregational service? You went to the temple to buy insurance, as it were. And you did it through various ritual acts and a payment. But an important part of that worship was a sexual act with a sacred prostitute who could be a homosexual, or it could be a woman, and it could be an animal. Bestiality was a part of these fertility cult religions. Again, what we must say, these were not primitive religions. The evolutionists try to portray these 
fertility cults as though they represented an early stage in the development of religion. In reality, they represented a stage of decline, of decadence, of cultural collapse. Just as today we have, as we are declining and collapsing, a tremendous amount of sexuality and sex worship, many of these uh, black masses and magical groups, their worship is a worship that is no different than the old fertility cult. In all of these, today is the mark of sexual, of uh, cultural decay. The point is a very important one, because man, when he is healthy, when he is prospering, does not see sex as primary in his interest. He is concerned more with work, with calling, with status, with property, with exercising dominion. This is the basic urge in man. But when you have a cultural collapse and men cease to be men in the true sense of the word, then sexuality replaces man's normal interest with an abnormal interest in sex. Now, he may be less virile, but he is more intensely interested then. Thus, it has been shown again and again in times of war, for example, during World War II. When people were in prison camps, After they lost hope, those who were without faith, as they faced starvation, became, just before they, uh, the period when they became too weak to function, so intensely and insanely interested in sex that it was just almost unbelievable. Why? Being without faith and without hope, sex had replaced the normal God-given desire in man to exercise dominion through a calling, through his position as head of a household, and so on. So that whenever you have a fertility cult in a culture, you know that instead of being a culture that's low on the evolutionary scale, it is a culture that has collapsed that has decayed. This is true whether you deal with, say, cultures like the ancient cultures of the Near East or with the tribes of Africa. It's a very interesting thing, but there are evidences among the tribes of Africa of ancient Egyptian civilization. Very definite traces of it. The African was not originally an inhabitant of the whole continent. Even when the white man landed in South Africa, it was still practically uninhabited. The whole lower half, virtually, of that continent. 
only a few tribes of wandering Bushmen and Hottentots, who could be numbered in the hundreds, could be found in the northern part of what is now the Union of South Africa. They had not moved very far into Central Africa, and there are remnants even down into Rhodesia of stone fortresses and all, which they don't know much about. But at one time, various peoples had ruled, and we know of Arab empires that ruled down into some areas of Central Africa. So that many of the practices of the modern African represent the cultural decline and collapse of superior cultures that were there before and ruled over them, and they just have the dregs of it now. This is true elsewhere in the world. Thus, when we first meet with the cultures of the Near East in the Bible, as well as in the historical records, they were far gone. It would have been centuries after the flood, after they had been established, and they had declined. It's always interesting to go to an ancient culture and look at its documents. And let's take a look at the, some of the writings of some of these people that I deal with in chapter 3. In I can't locate the passage. We have one culture looking back on Dilmun as the Golden Age. And I wanted to cite it a very interesting one. They look upon it as paradise. And of course, Dilmun, of which Jeffrey uh, Bibby has done some very interesting work on, was an ancient civilization before Crete's day that was very powerful, very prosperous, very wealthy, were just learning a little bit about it. And so they looked back onto that as paradise. But they had, significantly, a backward look. So that, in some of the earliest inscriptions we have found, men look back and say, those were the good old days. That's when we had a good order law and order, prosperity, peace, and so on. Now going centuries later to 1728 to 1686 B.C. to the Code of Hammurabi. It's very interesting to see the kind of law they had. Now I'm going to read from the Code of Hammurabi and then from Hittite law, and then comment on it. Now from the Code of Hammurabi, 
if the wife of a senior, a citizen, has been caught while lying with another man, they shall bind them and throw them into the water. If the husband of the woman wishes to spare his wife, then the king in turn may spare his subject. Very interesting. They had a sense of justice. Remember, they all had the original revelation of God given to all people in Noah's day. But if the husband wanted to spare the wife, then the adulterer had to be spared too. Justice had to be even-handed. If the finger was pointed at the wife of a senior because of another man, but she had not been caught while lying with the other man, she shall throw herself into the river for the sake of her husband. Women's lib would not like that. In other words, she was to protect her husband's reputation if she were talked about. Not exactly my idea of a just law. Then, if the senor was taken captive, that is, during war, but there was sufficient to live on in his house, his wife shall not leave the house, but she shall take care of her person by not entering the house of another. In other words, she cannot remarry as long as there's something to live on. But if he's a captive and there's nothing to live on, oh, she's free. If that woman did not take care of her person, but has entered the house of another, they shall prove it against that woman and throw her into the water. This was a favorite way in Hammurabi's day, apparently. Then, to cite a few more, give an indication of the life of the times. If a father dedicate his daughter to deity as a harodule, a sacred prostitute or a devotee, and did not present a dowry to her after the father had gone to his fate, she shall receive as her share in the goods of the paternal estate her one-third patrimony, but she shall have only the usufruct of it as long as she lives since her heritage belongs to her brother. This is a very interesting law in that it reveals a very common practice of the day that was regarded as a, regarded as a very holy practice. For people to dedicate their daughters to the temples as sacred prostitutes. Then to pass on to Hittite law. To give you an idea of the culture I just, I'm just giving a sampling. Every type of thing was covered with very minute regulations so that they had a highly urban civilization with all kinds of laws for uh, control of uh, merchandising, of trade, everything. This from a Hittite thought. If anyone steals a bull, if it is a weanling, it is not a bull. If it is a yearling, it is not a bull. If it is a two-year-old, that is a bull. They would formerly give 30 head of cattle. 
Now he shall give fifteen head of cattle, specifically five two-year-olds, five yearlings, and five weanlings, and he shall pledge his estate as security. Now I cited those laws because they form quite a contrast with biblical law. These are laws from highly developed, very advanced civilizations. But the basic biblical law of restitution is not there. The biblical law of restitution is if a man has stolen a cow, he restores fivefold. Why? Because that cow is able to multiply, and therefore he restores the one he does, and uh, he restores five others as penalty. Restitution, the full value. If he steals a hundred dollars, he restores that hundred plus another hundred. He is fined commensurate with the value of that which he steals. And you see, a cow, the theft of it is the theft of future calves as well. So he pays in terms of that. But the principle of restitution was not in these laws. The punishment did not fit the crime. For a woman to be thrown into the water and drowned just because she was talked about when there was no guilt proven, just to spare her husband's reputation, uh, that is not justice. And when a man has to restore fifteenfold, and as the law says earlier, it was thirtyfold, but that was a little too much, and then his whole estate has to be put up as security. It is really expropriation. It's not justice. The principle of justice that the punishment should fit the crime and it should be restitution commensurate with the value of that which was stolen. So it could be from twofold to fivefold, depending on the kind of thing it was. This you do not find anywhere else in the world, and of course we as we become humanistic have lost it. We've gone to the idea of prison, which is a humanistic idea. It used to be restitution, and if you didn't have it to restore, you became a bond servant and worked it off. Now, to go on to some observations on life from the period, from Akkad, which was a sister state in the days of Sumer, or of the Chaldees. This, I think, is very interesting. Arcadian observations on life and the world order. Whence come the evil things everywhere? I looked backwards. Persecution, woe. Like one who did not offer a libation to a god and at mealtime did not invoke a goddess, who did not bow his face and did not know reverence, in whose mouth prayer and supplication ceased, for whom the holiday had been eliminated. 
who became negligent, despised their images, who did not teach his people religion and reverence, who did not remember his God, although eating his food, who forsook his goddess and did not offer her a libation, nay, worse than one who became proud and forgot his divine Lord, who swore frivolously in the name of his honorable deity, like such a one have I become. Yet I myself was thinking only of prayer and supplication. Supplication was my concern, sacrifice my rule. The day of the worship of the gods was my delight. The day of my goddess procession was my profit and wealth. Veneration of the king was my joy, and I enjoyed music in his honor. I taught my land to observe the divine ordinances, to honor the name of the goddess I instructed my people. The king's majesty I equated to that of a god, and reverence for the royal palace I inculcated in the troops. Oh, that I only knew that these things are well-pleasing to a god. What is good in one's sight is evil for a god. What is bad in one's own mind is good for his god. Who can understand the counsel of the gods in the midst of heaven? The plan of a god is deep waters. Who can comprehend it? Where has befuddled mankind ever learned what a god's conduct is? Now, there is your answer. This is from the supposedly sacred writings. There's your answer to those who say, well, other religions have their Bibles. Now, here's a man who begins by saying, well, I've done something wrong, and that's why I'm having problems. The gods don't like me because I've neglected these things. Then he says, no, I observed all these things. I did everything. And look at me. How do I know what's good to a god and what's bad to him? The things I think are good, he seems to think are wrong. And the things I think are bad, he seems to think are good. Where has befuddled mankind ever known what the gods expect of him? Now there is a cry out of the ancient world. Of course, a cry that would not listen to the word of God because his witness is always there. But this is paganism. They had no certain word. Or to cite another citation, this again from Akkad. This is a pessimistic dialogue between master and servant. And this, I think, is a very, very telling one. Because here is a very wealthy, powerful master. And I'll just read portions of it. It is long. Who is writing this. He has whatever he wants. He can say, I want this and it will be brought to him. Bring me food. Bring me my chariot so I can take a ride. Bring me some women. Bring me this. But there's no pleasure in all of these. So... He commands and then he annuls the command. Life is meaningless. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. Bring me at once the chariot. Hitch it up. I will ride to the palace. Ride, my lord, ride. All your wishes will be realized for you. The king will be gracious to you. No, servant, I shall not ride to the palace. Do not ride, my lord, do not ride. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. Bring me at once water for my hands and give it to me. I wish to dine. Dine, my lord, dine. To dine regularly is the opening of the heart. It brings joy. 
To a dinner eaten in happiness and with washed hands, the sun god Shamash comes. No, servant, I shall not dine. Do not dine, my lord. Do not dine. <laughs> to be hungry and eat, to be thirsty and drink, comes upon every man. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. I will build a house. I will not build it. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. I intend to start a rebellion. Do it, my lord, do it. If you do not start a rebellion, what becomes of your clay, that is, your body? Who will give you something to fill your stomach? No, servant, I shall not do something violent. Do it not, my lord, do it not. The man doing something violent is killed or is maimed or captured and ca cast into prison. Servant, obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. I will love a woman. Yes, my lord, love, love. The man who loves a woman forgets pain and trouble. No, servant, a woman I shall not love. Do not love, my lord, do not love. A woman is a well, a woman is an iron dagger, a sharp one who cuts a man's neck. And so on it goes to the very end. And then finally, servant obey me. Yes, my lord, yes. Now what is good? To break my neck, your neck, throw both into the river, that is good. Who is tall enough to ascend to heaven? Who is broad enough to ascend the earth? No, servant, I shall kill you and send you ahead of me. Then would my lord wish to live even three days after me? Now, that's a very telling dialogue of a man to whom life means nothing. He's ready to try anything. He's a friend of the king. He thinks he'll go there and chat with the king, but oh, doesn't mean anything. I'll start a rebellion. Why? Doesn't mean anything. Bring me a woman. That doesn't mean anything. Food. I'll build me a better house. Nothing means anything. Let's both die. And I'll kill you and send you ahead first. <laughs> this is the kind of pessimism, you see, the loss of will to live that came upon every one of these ancient countries. They committed suicide first by losing their will to live before they were overthrown by an enemy. Then one more quotation, and this from another Arcadian statement. Now this will go back, you see, to the days of Abraham and earlier. The primeval king, the god Naru, creator of mankind, the glorious god Zulamaru, who nipped off their clay, the queen who formed them, the divine lady Mama, M-A-M-A, -A -A, they bestowed upon humanity ingenious speech, falsehood and untruth they confirm, uh, conferred upon them forever. Enthusiastically they speak of the rich man's graciousness. He is a king, his tutelary deities go at his side. As if he were a thief, they mistreat a wretched man. They bestow slander on him. They plot murder against him. Disloyally, they bring every evil upon him because he lacks protection. Dreadfully, they destroy him. They extinguish him like a flame. 
In other words, says this man, the deck is stacked. The gods are favorable to the rich and the powerful, and the rest of us are treated like dirt. Life is no good. It is misery. And so, what is there to live for? This is what, over and over again, in one nation after another, in antiquity, people decide. Life is meaningless. What is there to live for? And they collapse before an enemy knocks them over. This has always been the destiny of humanism. And this is why it is important for us to study history. Last time, you recall, I said those who are interested in history in the past are those who are interested in the future. And so as we study, we shall see the pattern of things, how cultures rise and fall, that the meaninglessness of life without God overwhelms them before an enemy overwhelms them. And then in the Christian era, we shall see the new strands that comes in, that come in, and how there is the wrestling with humanism. Next week, if you will continue your reading through chapter 7, and we will try to pick up a little speed as we lay a little more groundwork and get to the more familiar modern era where we can go into more detail if possible. Are there any questions now about anything in the written text or what we have uh, been discussing yet? We don't know what Shakespeare's faith was, but this we do know. When Shakespeare went to school, the study of the Bible was mandatory in school so that he would have known it thoroughly from cover to cover, long sections of it by heart. Moreover, not only was that mandatory, but he also knew much of the Book of Common Prayer by heart. This would also be in his schooling. So that this is why when you read Shakespeare, the echoes of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer are so very, very extensive. He was schooled on that. That's where he basically learned to read and write, not from textbooks. Those were his textbooks. So that uh, it was inescapable for him to know the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer. Yes. Uh, the fundamentalists are always talking about past, you know, wars mm -hmm. and earthquakes and all that. And you read about earthquakes, you know that more horrible earthquakes existed, uh, uh, happened before any of the earthquakes that we have had now, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, there is evidence that in every era of judgment there had been more earthquakes over and over again in history, more disasters. But that has happened over and over again in history. Thus, in the declining days of Rome, the number of disasters of various sorts was very great. In my book, Biblical Philosophy of History, I just go to the almanacs and I show how in the 50 years before World War II, there were uh, nowhere near as many earthquakes and tornadoes, hurricanes, and so on, as in the 14 or 15 years after World War II. In other words, there's an increase right now. But this has happened over and over again in history in times of judgment. So, if they're wrong in saying that it's uh, just a sign of the end, it's a sign of judgment again and again in history. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. There are one or two uh, good biblical uh, atlases. I'll try to get out the ones I have and see which ones I would recommend. If I have them all available, a lot of them are still stored in the garage. But what? Yes. Right. It would be a very invaluable thing. And maps are very interesting because they tell us so much. Uh, it's hard to realize that at one time Lithuania, which to us is such a little country, extended all the way to the Black Sea. It was a very powerful country. And now it's no longer in existence. The Soviet Union has swallowed it up. And before that, it was just one of the three Baltic republics, small countries. But it was a very powerful empire one. And maps can tell us that. Yes. Well, of course, my belief is that we are in a time of judgment now. But, but I believe that we shall have a long time of godly rule and prosperity before the end time. This is my belief. And the uh, book of Isaiah certainly indicates that there will be an era of tremendous uh, worldwide peace and prosperity, a long lifespan, and a glorious era in the latter days. No. Yes. exactly what he said, that he had come to fulfill the law, and it means 
to put it into force. Now, that statement would be ridiculous if Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, I have come to fulfill the law, if it meant what some people say, that he came to end it. He would be then saying, Think not I came to destroy the law, I came to do away with it. So that's a contradiction. What he says instead is, I have come to put the law in force. Yeah. This week is Halloween week. Mm-hmm. Could you, you, you brief, uh, briefly kept on in the past about the historical significance? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the origin of Halloween, which has now become meaningless. It has no meaning, really. It's just a meaningless relic. It's very definitely in uh, distant antiquity. It goes back at least a couple thousand years B.C., and there are scholars, uh, notably Rewinkle, Alfred Rewinkle, R-E-H-W-I-N-K-E-L, in his book, The Flood, who have developed a very good case for the fact that Halloween celebrates the dead from the flood. And many, many ancient legends and myths, uh, and you find Halloween all over the world, state that it was at that time that uh, the people died in the judgment of God in a flood. And therefore their spirits are commemorated on the anniversary of the date of the flood. Now this is the ancient story concerning it. There's no reason to doubt it because Halloween falls on that date which in terms of the Bible was the date of the beginning of the flood. So, uh, it's the time when in the ancient world the ungodly began to uh, honor the people before the flood who were ungodly and who perished. In other words, by declaring, look, we were on their side as against God, so we'll honor them as against God. Well, how, as Christian parents, how, how far do you go <laughs> in trying to determine with little ones. Um, I tried to, to switch it over to Reformation Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they keep on trying to get back to wearing a costume. Yes. Well, it's basically harmless <laughs> now because uh, the meaning is gone, really. No one knows it any longer or what it means except a few Christians. So the real problem today with Halloween is that it's becoming dangerous for kids to be out. And I was really shocked the other day to see in the paper warnings to parents. First of all, telling them to accompany their children and to go only in their neighborhood where there were lights on the porch and if they received anything that indicated that the uh, candy had been opened uh, or if there was any sign of any bruise in the apple, not to do anything but throw it away. 
that the number of people who are putting poison into candy bars and razor blades into apples and things of that sort is legion now. It's an appalling fact. But uh, the police are seriously thinking of uh, wishing they could abolish it because of that problem. So their counsel, uh, which I thought was uh, a statement by the police department, was if you can uh, eliminate it with your children or else take them to a few selected homes in your neighborhood of people you know. So uh, it's not a harmless holiday now. Well, it is exactly nine, so our time is up.